0: right. well we'll be covering chapter 3 today of our uh, study in Work and Our Labor in the Lord by James Hamilton. Uh, Pastor Fry has covered the first two chapters already for us uh, the last couple of weeks, so we'll be today uh, working our way through chapter 3. There's four chapters uh, total in the book, not counting the introduction and conclusion, so we're over halfway through and so far it's been a really good study Um, and uh, I think you'll find today's chapter that uh, we cover as well is also very edifying. Uh, If you look at the titles of the chapters within the book, you'll see that what Hamilton's done here is essentially structure his discussion on work uh, along the lines of redemptive history. And so if you look at chapter one, He talks about work in the creation. Chapter 2, he's talking about fall and how that affects our work. Chapter 3, today, what we're going to cover is uh, talking about uh, redemption. And then chapter 4, which we'll cover in the next study that we do here, is on restoration. So he follows that pattern of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I think it was an interesting choice Uh, by Hamilton, and it's very effective in the way that he's done it. Um, If you recall from chapter 1, when we had that discussion, we talked about God's design for work prior to the fall, so God's initial design for work in the creation of man. And God gave man a number of commandments associated with his work. He was to be fruitful and multiply. He was to fulfill the earth and subdue it, and to work and to keep the garden that he had been placed in. Those were the commandments given to man initially uh, in creation. Then in chapter 2, as we moved into talking about how work is affected by the fall, we see that those commands that God has given to man are still valid. They didn't go away when sin came into the world. Uh, However, our ability to fulfill those commandments has been radically altered by our sin, by the sin of Adam and the sin that we inherit from our first parents. So again, God's commandments are still there, but our ability to fulfill them is hindered significantly. However, it wasn't only a negative message. If you remember from what Pastor Fry talked about last week, uh, there's also a positive message. God, in his grace, has still allowed us to flourish And even to enjoy our work, despite the fact that it is made futile by our sin. And so now as we go to chapter 3, what we're going to talk about is how we can work in obedience to God and in fulfillment of those commandments that he's given us now that Jesus Christ has come, now that Jesus Christ has accomplished our redemption. What can we now do to fulfill these commandments God has given us regarding the way that we work, and really regarding all of life. You can see that um, the author has applied all of these things to work. However, if you apply them to other aspects of life, th- that also um, also works. So, again, uh, these are things that we'll see today. We'll take these principles that Hamilton gives us. They're coming from the New Testament, and what we'll see is that they are principles that were true for the people uh, who were living at the time when the New Testament was written, but they're certainly also still true for Christians today. And so Hamilton summarizes all of this with a succinct statement at the beginning of the chapter. He says, We've seen that God created man to work, that sin has made fallen work futile, but that God's merciful instructions nevertheless enable flourishing. We now consider how what Jesus accomplished on the cross redeems and frees people to work for God's glory. So a couple of comments before we start walking through the principles that Hamilton's given us, on, just to cover what he is and is not saying. So what Hamilton is not saying is that these principles he's going to give us are somehow new principles that were instituted as part of the new covenant and they were not previously uh, principles that God's people should have been living by before. He's not giving us something necessarily that's new. What it is is that the apostles in the New Testament in their writing have brought these principles into sharp focus for us. So they've you know, brought these out and, and given them to us in order to instruct the church on how to live and how to work so what we see here really are timeless principles uh... that are being re-emphasized by the apostles uh... secondly this is not an exhaustive list obviously of all of the principles that we ought to follow in our work however it's a good one and it's a easy summary to refer back to so i think what hamilton's given us here is very useful it's something that we could always go back and open up and and read through again any anytime we're sort of struggling with how should we approach our work? What are the principles that we should be following at a general level? So it's clear here from what we see that God has graciously given us many useful principles to follow and we should strive in all aspects of our lives to abide by them. And certainly when it comes to work there are commandments that were given by God to Adam and Eve prior to the fall that are still applicable for us today. We should still be diligent in seeking to honor these commandments we've been given. Uh, And the side benefit of that is that ultimately when we follow these principles, when we're seeking after God's glory, we will find a much greater fulfillment and satisfaction in whatever work it is that we're engaged in. All right, so let's go ahead and start looking at the principles that we're going to walk through today. In addressing the subject of work in the life of the Christian, Hamilton takes a two-pronged approach. First, he looks at scriptural principles for how not to work, and then he follows that up with scriptural scriptural, uh, principles for how we should work. So he uses that approach, and that's what we'll be following today. As he's done in the previous chapters, Hamilton gives us an organizing principle to follow as we try to organize our thoughts around these concepts. Um, He's done that in the previous chapters, and here he uses as our organizing principle Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We see there that Paul says, "'I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice,' holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Moore points out that in this passage, it's God's mercy which allows us to do what Paul is commanding us to do here, right? God's mercy not only makes us capable of following his commandments, it makes us willing to follow his commandments. And so it's truly by God's mercy alone that we can do any of what we're going to talk about today. In this passage, we see that twofold instruction as well. We see both a negative imperative and a positive imperative. We see a negative imperative in that we're instructed to not be conformed to the world. That's the negative then on the positive side, we see the imperative to be transformed through the renewal of your mind. Now, this is a common or a well-known passage that we've covered many times, um, but I think the way Hamilton's used it here is very effective. Uh, essentially, what he said is, you know when we look at the principles for how not to work, we can follow that uh, principle of do not be conformed to the world." So that's sort of the header that, we, that we're that we under when we're looking at how not to work. Don't be like the world. Don't be conformed to the world. And then we'll come back later and look at the being transformed through the renewal of your mind when we talk about principles for how we should work. Then Hamilton states in the book that when we look at the behaviors that conform to the world, in each scenario these behaviors uh, tend to... Uh, fall into uh, essentially what you could say is you know, not uh, imaging forth God's character in the world like we've been commanded to do, and instead pursuing idolatrous impulses. So really when we talk about being conformed to the world, no matter what it is, it always ties back to idolatry, the worship of something other than God. Uh, as we see in Romans chapter 1, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, putting that creature up in that Uh, spot where we're worshiping them. And so that's uh, something that he'll continue to come back to. If you recall from chapters 1 and 2 as well, I've listed out here at the bottom of the slide the four things that Hamilton pointed out, you know, uh, an additional kind of four points to keep in mind, uh, things that God had commanded us to do uh, as part of that being fruitful and multiplying and Uh, fulfilling and subduing the earth Uh, these four items were imaging forth the character of the one true and living God that's part of what we do as we uh, fulfill and subdue the earth Uh, exercising God blessed dominion over the created world over the God created world Uh, ruling and subduing the earth as God has commanded us to do and flourishing in a futile and fallen world by eating drinking and enjoying our work If you look at all of chapters 1 and 2, we talked about how God has given us the imperatives to do all those things. Well, idolatry is essentially doing the opposite of that. Not doing any of those things, but chasing after idols. When we're conformed to the world and its wisdom, as opposed to being conformed to the image of Christ and His wisdom, we inevitably will fail to live up to these commands we've been given. So with that, let's walk through some of these principles for how not to work. And the way that Hamilton has broken this down is he's gone through several texts from the New Testament and uh, used those as example texts where he pulls these principles from. So the first one we have here is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Here Paul writes, "'Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor.'" doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In this passage, Paul condemns at least three things that do not reflect God's character. The first is theft or covetousness. The second is dishonest work, including all immoral, life-destroying schemes to make money. And then the third is selfishness or an unwillingness to share. As Hamilton points out, the command not to steal but to labor with honest work essentially in cover, covers all that is implied by the Eighth Commandment. Now he's referring back to the Eighth Commandment there. And while it says specifically that we shouldn't steal or we shouldn't, be, uh, shouldn't commit theft, uh, this can be understood to cover a large range of behaviors that embody the concept of defrauding others. Taking from others, uh, working to our own benefit at the expense of others, so as Hamilton points out, another way to think about that commandment is that we shouldn 't rip people off it 's a simple way to to keep it in, uh, to keep it in mind. Then the command to avoid dishonest work that we see here to uh, you know Paul has his emphasis on doing honest work uh, that 's also given to emphasize the importance of the goal of our work. What is it that our work is accomplishing? What type of job are we doing? What type of industry are we in? So what uh, we can take from this is that clearly it matters to God what type of work we are doing. There are clear examples of types of work that Christians should not be engaged in. The industries that would encourage or promote or facilitate sinful behaviors, sexual immorality, drunkenness, um, you know, defrauding people. Uh, There's clearly examples that we could think of where Christians should not be engaged in that type of work. Uh, On the other hand, it does matter what type of work we are doing. Are we doing honest work? Are we doing work that can glorify God? And the truth is, most of us, or probably all of us, are doing work that can be done to glorify God. The question is, are are we doing it in the right way? But uh, you know, it, clearly we can see from this um, principle that it is important to God what we are doing. So it is good for us to be reflecting upon what it is it that we do. How is it affecting people? Um, is it promoting righteousness, or is it promoting sinfulness? Is it promoting flourishing, or is it promoting destruction? Those are things that we should think about. And then the last comment there on selfishness uh, comes down to an unwillingness to share. It's something we'll see again elsewhere in the New Testament uh, many times, that essentially the principle is our work that we do is not only done to benefit ourselves. We ought to be doing work that benefits others. This is really a matter of the heart is what um, the author points out here. Um, in our work, we have to make sure we are avoiding the sin of selfishness or greed and simply working only for our own benefit, only f- to fulfill our own desires. Work is something God has given us in order that we would bless and benefit others. And we'll see that principle again uh, a few more times, so I won't belabor the point here. The other thing that Hamilton pointed out that I thought was a good uh, thing to hold on to was that um, looking at the issue of theft or stealing, there are a couple of other things that are sort of behind that, that are driving that. Uh, One is a lack of faith. If we're stealing, it clearly shows that we are not trusting God to provide us with what we need. We're not trusting in him to provide. We're, instead, we're taking something that he's given to someone else for, for ourselves. The other thing is that it shows a lack of gratitude as well for what we do have. So, you know, theft is sort of the outward expression of inward sins of the heart. The next text that we look at is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. There, Paul writes, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul's instructions here have in view several bad fruits associated with avoiding work. Those we've listed out here are disruptive discontent, meddlesome behavior, laziness, disreputable conduct. And dependence on others, and the first instruction to aspire to live quietly paul 's point is not it is that the Christian should live a life that 's not characterized by disruptive behavior it 's not to say that Christians will never be disruptive. We know that taking the gospel forth in a world that is in rebellion against God is going to be disruptive from time to time, but that 's not what paul 's getting at here he 's trying to make the point that Christians ought to give care to the way they live their lives and not live in a way that is uh, disruptive to their fellow, you know, Christians, disruptive in their society, um, unnecessarily so. Essentially, what he's saying is not that we shouldn't be engaged socially or politically, um, but that that we should strive for peace and that we should not be cantankerous. That's what he's getting at here. And the appropriate way to understand that instruction is to view it in light of the rest of this uh, scripture here, the rest of this excerpt that we've taken from 1 Thessalonians. What Paul is also saying is to avoid a lifestyle characterized by meddling, meddling in other people's affairs. This is something that tends to be more of a problem when we are not engaged in godly work. Whenever we're idle or lazy, we have more time to bother other people, right? So essentially what Paul is saying is, you know, uh, engage yourself in godly work and stay out of other people's business. Uh, You know, not to the point where we're not engaging with other brothers and sisters in Christ, but don't be meddlesome. I think we all know, you know, we can think of examples of this, so I don't need to, you know, belabor it here. But that's essentially what Paul is getting at. And we can all think of examples, right, you can, parents who have children, you can think of examples of, you know, when your children don't have useful things, useful tasks to do, are they more or less likely to start squabbling, fighting, getting in trouble, right? They, they need things to do, and that's why it's good to give children tasks to do, um, not only to teach them how to do tasks, but just to keep them engaged and keep them away from pursuing sinful behaviors. And as much as we like to sort of laugh and and put that on children, it applies to adults, too. It applies to all of us. We all need to be engaged in godly work because whenever we become idle, when we don't have fruitful things to be doing, we we tend to produce bad fruit. We're at least more prone to it. So this is a good principle for all of us. Uh, The instruction to work hard and avoid being meddlesome It's for our own good, but it's also to help provide a faithful witness to Christ and his character, which is what we should be showing forth as followers of Christ. We ought to walk in the ways in which Christ has walked in order to avoid bringing his name into uh, disrepute among unbelievers. And now, unbelievers, to be sure, are always going to insult Christ and those who follow him. They're in rebellion against God, as we know. However, we should be concerned about maintaining our character before them so that any accusations that they might bring against us are not justified. It's, you know, how shameful is it whenever they can bring accusations against Christians and it is justified. So we really should be um, taking care about the way that we walk before others, believers and unbelievers, for that matter. To be sure, the gospel that we preach to a lost and dying world is our most important witness to Christ and his character. But the way that we walk before others will either support that message that we're preaching or it will undermine it. Hamilton, uh, here in this chapter in the book, he emphasizes this and and summarizes it uh, with the statement that is here at the bottom of the slide. He says, by embracing the wider story in which they were to find their identity, they were to find the quiet life desirable, their own affairs special assignments from God, the work they could do with their hands a privilege, and the productive pursuit of good repute with those outside, a matter of building God's own reputation. And That's a really good summary. Then moving on in the same book to chapter 5, verse 14, Paul writes, And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Here, Paul charges the church in Thessalonica to address four points where they've been insufficient. Idleness, faint-heartedness and timidity, weakness, and unconcern for those who won't work. As we just saw in chapter 4, Paul has provided a number of examples already on how idleness tends towards sinful and disreputable behavior. Here he once again gives the church the instruction to admonish those who are walking in idleness. So we see this is clearly a prevalent issue in Thessalonica. Additionally, he exhorts the members of the church to be engaged with one another, if you notice that from the text. he exhorts them to bear with those who are weak and timid in order to build them up in their faith, to help them out. Hamilton points out that in order to show forth God's character, the Thessalonians needed to exhibit behaviors that were the opposite of the four issues he's pointing out here. Rather than being idle, they needed to be diligent in godly work. Rather than being faint-hearted or timid, they needed to boldly trust in God's promises and his provision for them. Rather than being weak, they ought to be strong in faith and seeking to walk faithfully in obedience to Christ. And rather than being unconcerned about those who won't work or impatient toward them, they ought to be long-suffering toward one another. So the author summarizes this uh, section by saying, the admonishment, encouragement, help, and patience that Paul calls for here is the opposite of indifference. In order for Christians to do these things, they will have to pay attention to one another, know one another, and then engage one another. So we recall from Ephesians chapter 5 that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, that no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. All right, we remember that from Ephesians chapter 5. Well, if Christ cares for and nourishes the members of his body... How reprehensible is it when the members of his church fail to care for and nourish one another? How healthy can the body be if a limb is out of joint or if a wound has become infected over time due to neglect? This isn't the way that it ought to be. So what Hamilton is saying here is that the members of the body need to care for one another just as Christ, the head of the body, cares for each and every member. There will be some members who are struggling with certain things, and others who are strong in those areas. And then you go to another area, and and the roles reverse. The, you know, the the one is strong while the other is weak. We all need to bear with one another, but it, it goes without saying that we can't do this if we're not engaged with one another, if we're not spending time together and and uh, getting to know uh, one another and, and what's going on in our lives. So. I thought this was just a good exhortation from, from Hamilton on uh, the need for the members of the church to be engaged with one another and, and growing and edifying one another in their faith. Then when we go from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians, what we're going to see is that that issue of idleness is still persistent, and Paul is still having to address it with the church there. Uh, So let's go ahead and look at chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. We'll read through verses 6 through 15. Paul writes there, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So here we see Paul addressing six pitfalls we can pull from this passage that the church needs to be on guard against. Idleness, as we've talked about before, and then a number of other issues that Grow, from, grow out of that, grow out of idleness. Um, rejecting apostolic teaching, mooching, burdening, meddlesome busybodying, and tolerance of what dishonors God. So Paul is connecting the issue of idleness to a number of other sinful behaviors here. One of the prominent issues is that um, those who are walking in idleness are rejecting the apostolic teaching and the apostolic example that Paul and others have set for them. So Paul points out that while they would have been right to have uh, been served and provided for by the church where they were preaching, they didn't take advantage of that right. Instead, Paul and others worked with their hands diligently night and day to earn their own living, and he says that they did this to set an example for the church there. It's possible that in uh, Thessalonica this issue of idleness was truly prevalent and Paul and other apostles recognized that uh, when they were there and so perhaps they intentionally were trying to set a good example for these people by not uh, as Paul says here um, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it you know they they didn't take any favors or take anything from the church they intentionally set an example of being self-sufficient and so Paul reminds them of that. He, he reminds them, not only did we teach you this, you know, he said, we taught you that if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, but we also set the example. We followed up. We weren't being hypocritical in saying that. And, and we even could have, you know, rightly uh, taken advantage of supplies from the church, but we didn't because we wanted to set this example for you. So he leaves them with no excuse. Anyone walking in idleness has, has no excuse here. Paul also returns to his theme of uh, not being a moocher, not being burdensome to others, and then also uh, not being meddlesome busybodies. He points out here, you know, um, you know, not to walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. He says, you know, don't let that be a part of your character. Um, Rather, you should be engaged in godly work. And lastly, Paul instructs the church not to tolerate those people who refuse to listen to these instructions and who, as a result, are living in a way that dishonors God. Now, this is different from the last verse that we looked at, or the last passage we looked at, where he was talking about being patient and long-suffering toward people who are weaker in the faith. What Paul is actually addressing here is the person who knows the apostolic commands and is intentionally refusing to do them and is in continual uh, disobedience here, and so uh, you know here the church is instructed to uh, you know essentially shame that person through breaking from normal engagements and instead when they do engage with that person calling them to repent of whatever it is that they're uh, that they're guilty of and so this is actually an element of church discipline right we um, don't have time to walk through all of that today but this is one of the steps in in church discipline and then lastly uh, this is the last verse we look at for principles of how not to work james chapter 5 verse 4 james writes there behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lord of hosts you shall not oppress your neighbor or sorry (laughs) that's in the next verse uh, but, again, James makes this point that you have to be righteous about the way that you approach um, paying others or giving them their wages. If you're in a position where you are in control over that. Uh, Pastor Fry actually just preached on this, I think, last month, uh, this particular passage. And what we have is really a a scathing condemnation from James of people who are defrauding others and doing it out of greed, withholding their wages. This is consistent with uh, these other scriptures from the Old Testament and elsewhere throughout scripture. This is a theme that's prevalent. So I included a couple of those here. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13 says, "'You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. "'The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning.'" Malachi chapter 3 verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So what we see here is that it's very important to God how we engage in commerce with others, whether it's people who we owe wages or people who we owe payments, you could use the same concept there you know when we engage uh, in commerce and we don't pay for something on time when we when we ought to. Um, these things are important to God because ultimately they come back to the sin of greed and selfishness and idolatry. So again good principles to keep in mind, um, as we think about how we ought to work and how we ought not to work. And so now we turn to the principles that Hamilton's give, uh, given us for how we should work. We come back, as I mentioned before, to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to that organizing principle that Hamilton had given us. And we see there, you know, that that positive imperative. We already talked about the negative imperative Do not be conformed to the world. And now he switches attention to the positive imperative. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Hamilton explains in the book that, he says, if the do not be conformed to the world side of the message comes down to avoiding idolatry, the be transformed by the renewing of your mind side amounts to love for God and neighbor. In this contrast that Hamilton draws for us, if to not be conformed to the world means to avoid idolatry, then being transformed by the renewal of your mind means to be sanctified, to be growing in grace, growing in the knowledge of God, and walking in obedience to God's moral law. And what is God's moral law? Well, as we know from the words of Jesus himself, he summarized it in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40 in response to the question of what is the greatest commandment, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus' comment there is that the commandments to love your God and to love your neighbor as yourself are a summary of God's moral law. So if we want to be growing in grace and following in obedience to God's commandments, we can keep those principles as guiding principles for us on how we ought to live and, in this case, in our discussion, how we ought to work. So Hamilton uses those two uh, guiding principles, uh, love for God and love for neighbor, in dividing up the principles that he gives us for how we should work. First, we'll look at principles for how we can work as an expression of our love for God. The first he gives us is that Christians are called to work to please God. And the uh, basis that Hamilton gives us for this is the parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25. If you recall from that parable that Jesus gives, or sorry, he tells this parable of uh, a master who's going away and he gives his three servants uh, Uh, he entrusts his wealth to them. He entrusts five talents to one, two to another, and one to the third. And then when he comes back, he either rewards or punishes those servants based on how uh, good their stewardship was of the talents that he'd entrusted to them. Remember the one who had five talents traded and uh, gained five more, the one who had two traded and gained two more, and the one who had one buried it, hid it, and didn't do anything with it and came back with one and the result is that the master condemns the the one who had buried his talent and takes that talent and gives it to the one who had the five and made another five right so there's so many things that we could learn from just that one passage but the one that Hamilton's bringing out here for us is specifically that God is pleased or displeased by what we do in our work Now that that sounds like something that should go without saying but do we think about that on a daily basis when we're at work? Do we think about it on our drive to work or from coming home from work? Do we think about it at work? Are we thinking about are we actively thinking about the fact that God is either pleased or displeased with whatever it is we're doing? I think if we spent more time thinking about that, we probably would have a lot clearer picture of how we ought to be working. But Hamilton points that out here. Uh, by using this parable of the talents to say that you know God is not neutral when it comes to what we're doing. He's either pleased or he's displeased. Uh, the second principle that Hamilton points out for us is that we are called to glorify God in all that we do. We're called to do all for his glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, we read, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Regardless of what type of work we do, we talk about different types of work, but regardless of the type of work we do, we are to honor God in the way that we do it. This may not even be the type of work that involves a paycheck. It could be volunteer work. It can be work around the home. It can be work in the church or in the community. Whatever type of work it is, we're called to glorify God in it. And so that's another principle that we ought to be thinking about on a daily basis is how are we glorifying God with what we do um, because the truth is we we can and he gives us opportunities to glorify him if also if we keep that goal of doing all for God's glory if we keep that in front of us I know I mentioned this earlier but it will result in a far greater satisfaction with whatever work it is that we're engaged in a far greater fulfillment because we know what the reason we're showing up to work that day it's to give glory to god and if we're keeping that ever in front of us that will give us a much greater sense of of uh, fulfillment and a, and a sense of purpose we're also called to do all things in christ's name in colossians three seventeen, paul writes and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Hamilton helps us understand what this means, uh, what it means to do things in the name of Jesus. You, know, you might ask, what What does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, Hamilton gives us a good uh, description of that. He says, the name of Jesus is about the character and mission of Jesus. To work in the name of the Lord Jesus, then, is to work in a way that reflects his character, and joins his mission. Keep that in mind. Reflects his character, joins his mission. To put the character of Jesus on display is to be transformed into the image of the invisible God. This means that for Paul to speak of working in Christ's name is another way for him to urge working for God's glory. I thought that was a really helpful way to look at it, that doing things in the name of the Lord Jesus means... uh, Reflecting his character, joining his mission, expanding his kingdom, right? And then we're also called to work from our souls to the Lord. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, um, in those verses, Paul writes, "'Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, "'knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. "'You are serving the Lord Christ.'" The phrase that's translated here as work heartily utilizes the Greek word, I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's psyche, which essentially is spelled like psyche, if you think of the English word psyche. Um, And what it means is typically soul, or it could be life, or like your being, your very being. The Legacy Standard Bible and the NASB, which Legacy Standard, from what I understand, uh, is based on, they both include a footnote here at this particular phrase to point out that the literal translation of it, of work heartily, would be work from your soul, is the way that it uh, would be rendered. So in other words, Paul's exhorting Christians to work from their soul, to work with every fiber of their being, because they are whatever work they're engaged in they are serving the lord in english we've got the saying give it all you got and that's essentially what paul is is saying here work from your soul give it all you got because ultimately you're not working for men your your ultimate master is the lord and so you have to always keep that in mind and when we look for rewards in our work we shouldn't be disappointed when things don't go the way we want when we don't get promotions we want Um, whatever else it is uh, that doesn't work out the way you'd hoped because ultimately the reward we're looking for in our work is not coming from men the reward we ultimately will receive for godly work is from the Lord and so that's a good thing to remember especially if you're in situations where you're having to work for unbelievers or ungodly persons Um, remember that ultimately like Paul says here you are serving the Lord Christ in your work So work from your soul. Give it all you got. The next principle uh, that Hamilton gives us is that we are to follow Paul's example of working hard to benefit others. And there's another one like it, you know, further down here that Hamilton gives us uh, to share with the needy. But uh, when we look at Paul's example of working hard for others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, but but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul gives God the glory and the credit here for all that Paul's doing. He recognizes that it's that Paul is just an instrument of God. Um, but he emphasizes that God is using him and others to work for the benefit of others. And another way... Sorry, I didn't mention we... Uh, have now moved from those uh, principles that Hamilton had included in the category of working as an expression for God. Now these are the principles that he's given us for working as an expression of love for neighbor. So... That one falls under love for neighbor. Another one that falls under love for neighbor is working to support the ministry, the ministry of the gospel. We know that God gives the members of the church different gifts and callings and blessings. Uh, We know that some are called to ministry and and most are not. Uh, And so those who are not can even um, support the ministry, though, in using their giftings and callings in order to... uh, work hard, and be able to provide support to the ministry. And Paul has given us that concept numerous places in the New Testament. A couple of them are here. 1 Corinthians 9.14, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And again, in Galatians 6.6, 6, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So I know that it is a biblical concept that those who are involved in preaching the gospel ought to be freed up to focus on that by being provided for by uh, the other members of the body. Of course, we also see Paul's example where he could have taken advantage of these things and did not. So we see both in the New Testament. But what Hamilton's getting at here is that that is another way that we can work to love our neighbor is by supporting those who are uh, called to ministry. He also mentions the principle of sharing with the needy, working to have something to share. If you recall, we read about that, you know, previously in our discussion of principles for how not to work. But he points out that, you know, we, rather than being a burden to others, we ought to work so that we can be a benefit and a blessing to others. Instead of needing to take from others, we ought to work so that we can put ourselves in a place to be ready to give to those who truly are needy, the ones who truly do have a need. Um, So, you know, as much as it is within our capacity, we ought to seek to not be a burden but rather a blessing to others uh, through our work. And then also, as we talked about before, we should work to live an undisruptive life. We should be focused on godly work and not on things like meddlesome busybodying and uh, disruptive behavior, as we've talked about already. Another reason, or another way that we can work as an expression of love for neighbor is to work as a good testimony for unbelievers. This is another concept that we talked about earlier, but when we work hard and when we're faithful servants to our earthly masters, even unbelievers will take notice of this. They'll take note of the, the Christian character that distinguishes us from others, in that we are faithful servants because we ultimately know that we're working for men, but we're working unto God. This maintains a good witness to Christ, and it avoids the hypocrisy that would accompany an outward walk that is contradictory to our profession of faith. In 1 Timothy six one, Paul writes, Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This shows that concept of working faithfully to be a good witness to Christ's character. In Titus 2.5, he also said, exhorts, uh, Paul exhorts, the young women in the church to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Um, you know, ladies, can you think of, you know, ways, how, how can your service, even in your home, even in service of your family, be a good testimony to unbelievers? You know, in the current, uh, culture we live in, you know, to, to work diligently, to commit yourself to make a, you know, a, a top priority, the service of your family, your husband and children, um, You know the keeping of the home, um, you know taking care of others. To do that is is completely out of step with what women are instructed to do or encouraged to do in our culture, and so it sticks out like a sore thumb when you do it. I don't know if you've had conversations with believers, even uh, certainly unbelievers. You know where the topics of uh, taking care of the children at home or homeschooling has come up, and. You know, your, your reaction may have been a jaw on the floor or, you know, dumbfoundedness. You know, how how can you do that? I, I could never stay home all day with my kids, and I can't imagine having to, to do all this work. You know, this is not something that is normal in our society today. But when you show forth that type of selflessness and sacrifice on the part of others, uh, you show forth Christ's character because we know that he is our ultimate example of selfless sacrifice, right? We think of, uh, you know, the, the command to um, to serve others, uh, to not be puffed up with selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Uh, you know, we can remember that in Scripture and the fact that, you know, Paul goes on from that to explain how Jesus is the ultimate example of giving of yourself in service of others, making others more important than yourselves. Um, you know, for wives and mothers who do this in the culture, they they provide a, a stark example of what that looks like for an unbelieving world that is focused on the all-important self. And so this even is an example of how Christians can um, work in a way that— um, is a good testimony for unbelievers. The next principle there that Hamilton gives us is to not be a burden to others, as we've talked about before. Uh, so I won't go over that one again, but you know, the same concept. Work to so that you won't be a burden, but rather you will be a benefit and a blessing to others. And then the last one he gives us there is... Um, we show we can work as an expression of love for neighbor and brotherly love that transcends race and status. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2, "...those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things." So as Christians, we are one in Christ. We're united by a faith that transcends class, transcends race, any other cultural standard, any other group identity. We show this by being impartial in our work, impartial to those who we work for, those who we work with, and those who work for us, if there are people who work for us. And this is a uniquely Christian concept that while we do recognize and celebrate differences in people, ultimately we find Our identity is those who've been redeemed. We find our ultimate identity in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And because of this, we can echo what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So this is the last principle that Hamilton gives us for how we're to work, and I think it's a fitting way for us to conclude the discussion uh, on these principles as we just discussed regardless of our various backgrounds we find our ultimate identity in jesus christ our savior and our king saints the banner that we gather under is christ and so let us labor under that banner each and every day let us work from our souls give it all we got and let us look to